It's Wednesday, March 9th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. President Biden has announced the latest steps to maintain pressure on Russia as Putin continues the Ukrainian invasion, banning all imports of Russian oil and natural gas. In his announcement, Biden acknowledged two key things. First, we will see increased gas prices as a result. And secondly, some of our European allies won't be able to take the same steps right away because of their dependence on Russian energy. Russia is the world's third largest oil producer and Europe is their biggest customer. Justin Sheck, reporter at The Wall Street Journal, joins us for how the oil bans will affect prices in the U.S. Next, the Great Resignation saw many people choose to leave their toxic jobs for better ones or leave for jobs that offered a better work-life balance. But not everyone left, and some just opted to take it a little easier and work less. Employers are struggling to retain workers and are just having to deal with it. The hustle culture is over, and the challenge for employers is to figure out how to navigate the changing workplace attitudes. The new hybrid work life might just be one that accommodates both types of employees. Aki Ito, senior correspondent at Business Insider, joins us for the new coasting culture at work. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. We can take this step when others cannot, but we're working closely with Europe and our partners to develop a long-term strategy to reduce their dependence on Russian energy as well. Joining us now is Justin Sheck, reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Justin. Thank you for having me. Well, we're continuing to talk about Ukraine and Russia and what the U.S. and the West is really trying to do to put the pressure on Putin and Russia to stop all that the, the invasion that they're going through. The latest is that President Biden said that the U.S. will be banning imports of Russian oil. Now, this is a step that a lot of people were asking for. Obviously, President Zelensky of Ukraine was asking for, but it was getting some bipartisan support after Zelensky spoke to members of the Senate on Zoom. And this kind of, again, we've been imposing so many different sanctions. This uh, oil part of it is one that a lot of people think will definitely hurt Russia, but the United States imports so little of it proportionally, really. You know, Europe is the big player in this. The questions remain, you know, how effective will this be? So, Justin, tell us a little bit more about it, please. So, you know, it's partially symbolic, right? You know, the U.S. is trying to create financial consequences for what Russia is doing in Ukraine. And how can you do that in a meaningful way if you're buying their oil? And oil is the lifeblood of the country. But like you said, it's only 8% or so of the U.S.'s oil imports that are coming from Russia. It's not alone a meaningful amount of money for them, or it's not a hugely meaningful amount of money. But once the U.S. is giving this sort of seal of approval to doing this, and we've seen, you know, it was reported that Europe is, is looking at phasing in over the course of number of years, a reduction in oil imports from Russia, you can start to see how this could really hit Russia in a profoundly meaningful way financially. So that's a long way of saying, like, you know, right now it's not going to cripple Russia, but it, it, it is something that longer term could really have a meaningful effect and could become extraordinarily problematic if there's, you know, a consensus around the world that, that Russian oil is something you shouldn't buy. Right. And, you know, throughout this process, the, you know, a lot of other countries and all of our allies have been looking to the U.S. to take the lead in a lot of the stuff. So to your point, right, if the U.S. is starting to do it, a lot of a lot of the other countries are starting to do it, too. But, you know, Europe is so much more tied to Russian oil and energy 
than we are, it's more difficult for them. And President Biden even acknowledged that. He said, you know, it's going to be harder for our allies to do this. So let's talk a little bit about how big Russian oil is. Uh, They're responsible for more than 10% of the global supply. That's quite a bit. Yeah, so Russia is, is extremely important globally. Any specific country aside, oil is a global market. And if you do anything to constrain some meaningful portion of the global supply, even if you know, you're not the one buying it, it'll send oil prices up everywhere. So, yeah, you're looking at more than 10% of the global market. And any move that could take that off, absent some intervention by OPEC or another big oil producer to increase the oil supply, results in pain for everyone financially. So that's a big concern. That was a big concern for the Biden administration. Gas prices are already really high in the U.S. And to take some kind of action that will immediately result in a spike in gas prices is something that I think the White House was was very reluctant to do. That's a problem in the U.S. In Europe, Russian oil supplies are really important. Russian natural gas supplies are incredibly important. And as we've seen in the past, Russia has turned off the gas pipeline as, as a way to punish other countries in winter. So you have this issue in Russia. What happens next winter when is Europe going to try to not buy as much Russian natural gas? That becomes a lot harder and could result in you know much higher expenses for a lot of people. So the European Commission said the EU is uh, going to reduce their demand for Russian gas by two thirds before the end of this year and then completely phase out their dependence on Russian fossil fuels, they say, well before 2030. This is all going to take many years to do, obviously. So the impacts might not be as quick. I, I think the, the greater impact seems like just all the uncertainty in the in the global market for oil and, and what's going on. And you mentioned the gas prices here in the United States. You know, it's going up a lot. I live in California. The gas is already super high, but we're seeing gas stations that have it almost at $7 a gallon, which is just pretty insane. So let's talk about that part of it now. What is President Biden, what are officials trying to do to help with the prices here in the U.S.? Because as all of this stuff keeps raging on in uh, in Ukraine and with Russia, the gas prices here in the U.S. keep going up. I know. I live in California, too. I paid five eighty one a gallon yesterday, uh, which isn't $7, but it's bad. And the Biden administration has you know, limited number of options to, to mitigate that. You know, I think the, the most obvious thing that could happen would be that one of the U.S.'s big oil producing allies, like Saudi Arabia, could agree to increase its production to, to mitigate this. And the president is taking a trip out there, isn't he, to uh, hopefully talk about some of this? Yeah, I think that's the idea. But the Saudi relationship, I think, has become increasingly transactional over the last five years or so. You know, in the past, there was this idea to be an ally and an ally to put an ally. And I think during the Obama administration and now during Biden, the relationship between Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, and the White House has been really strained. And it looks more like the kind of transactional relationship we have with other countries, not the sort of deep-seated alliance. And so it seems like the Saudis might want something from the U.S. I don't know that, but they might want something from the U.S., it wouldn't just be like, we're your ally and we want, to, we want to support you. So it's a complicated thing there and it's not happening automatically, which I think is very frustrating to a lot of people in Washington. Yeah. So absent the Saudis stepping up and doing that, I don't really know what could have a short-term impact you know, that, would, that would lower oil prices, especially that you know, we're, we're getting into spring and summer when, when gas prices go up in the U.S. anyway, and it looks pretty rough. And I, I know that the White House sees the midterm elections coming up, and, and this is like not a great time for them to have gas prices spent. Yeah, I mean, it's a tough situation, obviously, because all of this stuff will take time to bear out to bring those prices down. 
this effort that President Biden went through right now, I mean, it, it did have some bipartisan support, but Republicans specifically are calling on President Biden to increase domestic oil production. Also, something that will take a long time to really get implemented and, and see the effects of. We're not Russia or Saudi Arabia, meaning we, the U.S., don't have a system where when the leader says produce more oil, they can just open the spigot more and you produce more oil. For the U.S. to produce more oil, there has to be a financial incentive, which there seems to be now with prices going up. There needs to be a financial incentive for independent companies to wrap up production. And that doesn't just happen by independent companies deciding they're going to pump more, more oil today than yesterday. You have to invest in, in drilling. You have to invest in all this infrastructure. And so for the U.S. to start pumping more oil is, is a means something different than when we ask Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia just can increase production from existing facilities. So, you know, historically, some of the things that people have called for to increase U.S. oil production, like, you know, one of the big ones for years was opening up exploration in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, like that kind of thing, that would produce theoretically more oil in like 10 years. That has nothing to do with gas prices today. So there's not really that much you can do in the U.S., to increase oil production enough in the very, very short term that all of a sudden gas prices would go down. Justin Sheck, reporter at The Wall Street Journal, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. I enjoyed it. People are working exactly the number of hours that they're supposed to, 40 hours a week. You probably wouldn't call this coasting, but 40 hours is still significantly less than they've ever worked in their lives. Other people are really, really pushing it, working maybe 10 to 15 hours a (laughs) week, which is remarkable. Joining us now is Aki Ito, senior correspondent at Business Insider. Thanks for joining us, Aki. Hi, thanks so much for having me on. Well, let's talk about something I think a lot of people suspected was happening going throughout, you know, what we've been seeing throughout the pandemic and and with regards to the workplace and work culture going on right now. We've went through the great resignation, the great reshuffling, a lot of people really reevaluating their work-life balance and trying to do something that's a little bit more appropriate for them. What it really shook out as a lot of people really valued what was going on in their lives more so than the workplace. They viewed the work as, hey, this is just a paycheck for me. And it's caused ripples throughout the entirety, like I said, of work culture right now. But Aki, you spoke to a lot of people who maybe didn't want to quit their jobs. They wanted to stay where they were, but they really decided, I'm going to take a step back. I'm going to start coasting a little bit more. So Aki, tell us a little bit about the conversations you were having. Sure. So what I found so interesting about this story is that I think a lot of us know that tons of Americans have reevaluated their relationship to work over these last two years. They want to make work less central in their lives. But I think the really interesting thing is that the pandemic has also created this economy over the last year where workers are actually able to live out their new resolve to make work less central because companies have become so desperate to keep everybody on payroll that they're willing to let workers get away with a lot less work than they used to. So it's it's really the perfect time for workers to coast if they want to. Whether you call it coasting or not, I think it depends on the person. Some people are working exactly the number of hours that they're supposed to 40 hours a week. You probably wouldn't call this coasting, but 40 hours is still significantly less than they've ever worked in their lives. Other people are really, really pushing it, working maybe 10 to 15 hours a (laughs) week, which is remarkable. 
quitting in place is also a term that uh, HR people use for this. You're just not putting as much in, but you're not leaving. And you're right, you know, for the employers, it's a hassle to hire, go through the process of hiring somebody new and training them. That could take months, really. For the person themselves, if the mindset is they're going to start coasting a little bit, I mean, it's just as work or more to start all over again. So that's kind of the balance uh, that people have to play. Right. I mean, companies hate this. They Companies, every HR department hates the great resignation right now. Ideally, they, they want workers to work really hard. They don't want workers to leave. But if it's the choice between losing an employee altogether, getting 0% contribution for months and months on end, they'd rather have somebody contributing at, let's say, you know, 50% or 80% than getting nothing at all just because it's so hard and so expensive to hire right now. Now, explain to me how this looks in practice, because you spoke to a few people, uh, like the way you put it, but you described it as a a delicate experiment. So, uh, you know, carefully pushing on the edges to see what you can get away with. Yeah, I I think, you know, a lot of overachievers, traditional overachievers would really identify with this. But if you're used to working, you know, maybe 70 hour weeks your entire career, then it's hard to suddenly, you know, scale that back, maybe working 40 hours or 35 hours a week, all of a sudden you're used to, you know, being a superstar and it's uncomfortable really pushing the limits there. For one uh, employee I, I talked to, I called him Justin in my story. He did it bit by bit, you know, shaving off half an hour here, shaving off half an hour there, running errands in the middle of the day, seeing uh, how much he can get away with until he scaled it back to 40. And he wants to scale it back even more in the months ahead. For other professionals, they just did it right away. As soon as they decided that this wasn't the way they wanted to live, that they wanted to work less and make more time for the rest of their lives, they just really, you know, cut it all the way back, uh, working maybe 30, 35 hours a week, believing that they could get away with it. Yeah. And an extreme example, you spoke to somebody in the story, his name was Anthony. So he worked remotely. His manager had little technical understanding of what he did. So it was that perfect storm there. And uh, he was working like 15 hours a week, billing them for 40. He picked up like a second job, kind of doing the same ploy. And I think now he's taking a few months off, you know, vacation time because he was able to rack up that money. So great for him. Right. But what does that say to other people that might be in some of these positions, other people that are looking for jobs and they're saying, man, these people are just coasting. You know, know, talk a lot about some of these terms in here, you know, the hustle culture versus the coaster culture. The story of Anthony really, I think, elicited the strongest reactions out of the readers of this story. A lot of people were like, Anthony, my man, he's my hero. Um, <laughs> you know, he should be exploiting his employer after he was exploited by his other employers in the past. You know, he used to put in crazy hours. And so this is kind of like payback time. But other people were really mad and they were like, you know, I work really hard and it's unfair that people are doing deceptive things like this to try to get away with less work. That means I have to put in more, but I'm not getting paid more to do that extra work. It's interesting. Yeah. It's 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 definitely a very radical approach to work that um, I, I think a lot of people wouldn't be able to do. <laughs> right. You know, the reason why I love this story so much right now is because We've been doing a lot of talk, a lot of conversations about what these changes in attitude towards the workplace really mean because of the pandemic, right? The pandemic halted everything. It changed everybody's mindset. And now that we're trying to get back to 
the normal, right? Um, It's this big challenge for employers. You know, do they accept this new professional mindset? People are willing to get up and leave at the drop of a hat, and then it leaves them with a huge hole of people that they need filling, you know, and then it's tough for them to resume normal operations. There's so many cascading effects that happen, but this is that challenge that employers need to figure out now. I think a lot of employers see the situation that they're in right now, and they think it's totally temporary. They think it's just late stage pandemic burnout, or they think it's because of the really hot economy and nothing else. But I think employers who are dismissing this as a completely temporary phenomenon are overlooking the really important reality that people have reevaluated their relationship to work and what to themselves feels a permanent way. And that means that even once the economy cools, even once the pandemic is over, they probably want to continue to work less than they did before. They no longer want to put 120% of themselves into their job day in and day out. And You know, I hope that means that corporate America will make room for employees like this who, you know, they want to do good work. They they want to put in an honest day's work, but they also don't want to sacrifice their evenings and their weekends the way that they used to. They want to have a life outside of work, too. And I, I hope companies make room for employees like this, because I think that's healthier for everybody. The other one of the other interesting things that uh, you noted in the article is there's been a lot of polls done about these changing attitudes that we're talking about. And a lot of people really do feel that they like when their jobs are more transactional, when you can cut it off, you know, at the end of the day and don't have to worry about until the next day. 20% of people said they're happy not to form deep bonds with their colleagues, meaning where you'd be spending hours on end at, at the workplace, forming those relationships. Some people are just happy not even doing that so that they can keep that personal life separate. And I think this is the kind of thing that would really surprise employers right now. This is the shift that's occurring in millions of Americans' minds. And that means that employers have to think about the way they design work in a way that's really different than before. They can't take hustle culture for granted anymore because that's not the philosophy with which I think a lot of Americans view their relationship to work anymore. The only thing I I'm curious about is in the long term, right? What happens later? Because there's always this situation and maybe that's part of the old attitude, right? There's always a situation where somebody will step up and do your job if you don't want to do it. And so how does this kind of evolve over time? You know, do these new attitudes take hold and that's the new norm and what happens in the future? It's not like I think anyone's arguing that these people who are working 30 hours a week should be paid the same as the people who are putting in, you know, 70 hours a week. The people who work harder and are producing more should get paid more. They should get bigger raises. They should get more promotions. But I still think the people who don't want to put in as much effort as they did before, they should still get the respect of their managers. They should still enjoy a place in corporate America. They should still have job security. So ideally, we'd come to a future where there's room for both people, people who want to work really hard and earn a lot and people who don't who want to make time for other aspects of their lives. Aki Ito, senior correspondent at Business Insider. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. 
This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.